Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan Ostroff with Legalese Marketing, and this is Exhibit A Attorneys, where we interview attorneys and other experts across the country to talk about what it truly takes to be the Exhibit A of a successful attorney. Today, I have not one, but two guests, both from Even Up Law. Even Up Law is a basically a tech company that tries to even the playing field, hence Even Up, between us, PI attorneys, and the insurance defense companies. A lot of that comes through standardizing demand packets to maximize the value of each PI case. So I've got these two gentlemen on here today to help talk to us about how we maximize the value of all of our personal injury cases. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us, Jordan. Really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. And both you guys have some really great backgrounds. So if you want to take a second, go ahead and fill out that bio a little bit more. Um, while that's going on, everybody, Breezy's going to be dropping the comments. So if you want to connect with Even Up Law and everybody else more, you'll have that opportunity right here. Sure, I'll get started. So my name is Sam. I'm one of the co-founders at Even Up along with, with Ray, my my second of third co-founders. I was previously a defense attorney. I did big commercial litigation. And as part of, you know, cutting my teeth, I did personal injury defense work, um, which led me to get, you know, particularly acquainted with wrongful death cases and other serious dismemberments in PI cases. Before that, I used to work at Chubb in claims. Uh, and so I have a pretty good sense of how the defense moves. Um, and we basically, I basically left my full-time practice uh, to co-found even up about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and it's been a, quite a journey since. Uh, I'll let uh, Ray uh, give us his background as well before going more into that. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys. My name is Ray. I'm one of the three co-founders at Even Up Law. My background's a little bit uh, different. I've primarily been in the tech space for a large majority of my career, so starting different tech companies um, within education, recruitment. Um, my last company got into 500 startups, uh, a platinum tier accelerator program. So I got to learn from the best minds in the world in terms of growing our business. So yeah, um, a little bit about me, what kind of connects me to this story here is just, uh, I never actually knew anything about the personal injury space other than my father who actually got into a catastrophic motor vehicle accident uh, back in 2004. And uh, one of the things that kind of motivates me every day is seeing that we settled for pennies on the dollar through that, uh, that case um, and, and that experience with my family. And, you know, through meeting Sam and, and my co-founder Rami, uh, it's pretty cool that uh, we're on a mission to kind of change the story for other people uh, through our product and our services. Yeah, it's so, it's so sad. I hear that story at least once a week. Just like, oh, my God, I wish I had called or this is what happened to us or, you know, can you guys go in and fix it now? And unfortunately, so many times the answer is no. So I just I love that you guys are putting that together from the tech space to try and even the playing field. All right. So we're going to talk about how to maximize the value of your personal injury case. Before we dive in on that, um, I want to talk about our last episode. We had Mitch Jackson on. So Mitch is the streaming lawyer, streaming.lawyer literally wrote the book on social media and branding for entrepreneurs and other professionals. Talk to us about how COVID-19 has changed the legal marketing and branding space and some things we can do to take a lot of our efforts digitally, virtually, remotely, while still continuing to build a brand. So after you hear the wonderful insight from Even Up Law, um, if, you're really, if you're concerned about social media and your branding, go ahead and listen to Mitch. But I want to dive in while I've got not one, but two amazing guests here on maximizing the value of your personal injury case. So Sam, I think where we need to start because a lot of people don't know this, even some attorneys kind of walk me through what happens on the defense side for a case, because I mean, like it is scary how much computers play a role in resolving PI cases, at least on that side. 
Yeah, so there, there are two ways to break this down. Number one is what happens at the pre-suit, and then what happens when the case is put into litigation. At pre-suit, there's actually quite a bit of divergence on what happens depending on which carrier you're sending your claim to. Uh, if some bigger carriers will only look at the CPT codes and assign a specific value that they decide is reasonable to it. And then I just, just want to jump in for a second. CPT codes, for those who don't know, if you can expand upon that a little bit. Yeah, so the CPT codes are basically the treatment codes. Whenever you look at your medical bills, there's going to be a, a code attached to every treatment. And, and the value of that treatment is going to be prescribed internally in certain carriers. So a carrier will look at all the CPT codes and will decide what the reasonable value for that is going to be, irrespective of what jurisdiction in which you're in. So there are certain carriers that... PI attorneys have a lot of difficulty with. Their approach is just to take the CPT codes, assign the value to that, and then give you uh, an offer on that basis and only that basis. And that's why you have certain instances where you send the demand package, you send in your medicals, and then all of a sudden, and there's no dispute as to liability, and despite that, you get an offer that is below your specials uh, or the, the medical the, the medical rec bills that you've accumulated for that particular case. That's That's really what happens. Other carriers are a little bit more methodical and a little bit, uh, let's just say, equitable in their processes. They'll look at the ICD codes, which is the, the diagnostic codes. Uh, these are basically the codes that are assigned by doctors when they are treating their clients, as well as the CPT codes. And so what the claim adjuster does, the first thing they do is they read through the medicals and the demand package, and they try to categorize what the injury, the bodily injuries were. And if they don't have the ICD codes, they must guess as to what those ICD codes are, and they tend to guess broadly. And what that does is uh, it, it actually reduces the value of your claim from the very, very beginning. Right. So if, if they if they guess broadly, the injury is less specific, less severe, then the software is going to return a lower quantum. Now, the other thing that we must consider for certain carriers is that the injury is not the only compensable element. There are other things like economic damages and economic damages is just is not just one thing. It could be a couple of things. It could be loss of household services. It could be economic losses. It could be out of pocket expenses. And so it's extremely important that you outline these different economic losses in the body of your demand package, because otherwise you're leaving money on the table. And sometimes you don't have perfect information and that's fine. And it's worth taking a stab at it based on statistical analysis that's out there as to you know what the value of this person's loss of household services is. Um, I gave when you, you talk a, about loss of household services, what are some examples of that? Yeah, this is basically, you know, let's say, God forbid, but let's say someone gets hurt, uh, they they can't pick up after the kids anymore, and their significant other needs to do everything for them. Uh, there is a there. This is not technically an economic loss, uh, but it is quantified in a very economic way. So, what is the value of their spouse's time in? contributing additional time to household chores. And in certain jurisdictions, this is this also falls under the ambit of lost time. So because of this injury, you are forced to spend your time in a way that you choose that you would otherwise not have done. And there's an, another that's an, there's another methodology you can adopt here in order to come up with a specific value uh, as to how much that is worth. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, you also have this system with the insurance company side where they're looking at 
you know, um, what prior claims you've had, what you've settled for before, your attorney's history, what your attorney settled for before in similar cases. I mean, the data that they're collecting on this is like minority report level. Yeah, that's exactly right. So going back to your initial question, what they do, this is this all happens on the adjuster sides, right? So they look at all this information, they put it into their system, and the system spits out a number. And then the adjuster has one of two choices. They can either accept this number and negotiate with it, or they can go back to their bosses and ask for a higher settlement band. And for them to go back to their bosses and ask for a higher settlement band, they need to not look like idiots. And so it's helpful to give them the ammunition that they can then utilize to justify a higher quantum. Now that this is all pre-suit. What happens if a case is put into litigation? That's what I would do. Uh, I would deal with relatively larger cases. So the reserving process was extremely, extremely important. And the insurance companies were very, very sensitive to how much they're reserving a case for. And what that means practically is that I need to sit down and pre prepare a case assessment memo, which is comprised of a damage assessment memo and a liability assessment memo. And to prepare my damage assessment memo, I needed to go through and do a verdict analysis. I need to look at the internal data of that insurance company. I need to hire an economist. And, and this was this, this is something that I, that I must do. And oftentimes I found myself not being assisted at all by the information the plaintiff counsel would have provided me. So I know a lot of folks make a religion out of uh, making defense counsel and adjusters as the, the most evil people out there. But if for a moment we were to suspend our beliefs in uh, how evil they are and to con contemplate them as our friends, then you would want to do a lot of that work for them because it actually reduces their workload and it makes them it's it makes it easier for them to give you the settlement uh, that you want and to reserve in such a way that you can get to the settlement that you need maybe after depositions. Makes total sense. Um, Ray, you want to jump with anything before I go over the next question? Not too much. I just wanted to kind of double click on that point. Insurance, not all insurance adjusters are as evil as kind of they're portrayed to be. And so uh, if you give them what they need to get their job done uh, and make their lives easier, then they can give you what you need and for your client uh, to get a better uh, outcome for their case. So, And faster. I mean, that's one of the things I've seen be the biggest is when you can get all the right information, you can expedite the resolution, even if the case would be worth the same, but it's better to have that money to your client now than four or five, six months down the road. Yeah, that's, that's, exactly. that's absolutely right. And, and I think one, one this was a minor point uh, a really minor point that uh, I think I had a lot of back and forth with my CEO on um, that required a lot of technical work for us to, to wrap up on, but just the practice of properly exhibiting things and making the medical records legible for all parties involved will go an incredibly long way. I know some PI practitioners have a practice of just lumping everything together and just sending it off into the ether, hoping that someone will parse through it in a methodical way. If you do a lot of that work for them, right? You're, you're helping them out a lot. And one of the big pushbacks that we get is a lot of adjusters don't even read this stuff. And fair enough. That's why they created bad faith laws for, right? <laughs> that's why, that's why it, there is a, a process through which you can make sure that you are getting, uh, you can open up the policy and get additional verdicts if the insurance carrier is not treating your demands in a fair and timely manner. Yeah. And Tactically, there's there's reasoning for you from the attorney side for this. I mean, there are cases that we are trying to maximize the value of the entire way through. There are cases where I genuinely don't want the insurance company to tender because it's already worth, you know, like some in Florida. So the ten thousand bucks that somebody else may have, they might already have a hundred thousand dollars in bills by the time they contact us. And in those, I'm like, please don't tender so we can get bad faith. And obviously, 
you know, to the insurance company's credit, <laughs> they they are very good about getting that stuff resolved very quickly in those egregiously terrible circumstances. So I want to back up a little bit and reframe this in terms of what attorneys can do ASAP or what or what um, or what litigants can do ASAP before suits even filed. Like, what are some things that can be done at that point or should say before a demand letter even goes out? What are some things at that point that can maximize the value of a PI case? Yeah, this is a really excellent question, and I think the, I think I'll give you the, the the more common answers, and then I'll give you our particular take. I think that one of the more more common answers is around medical management of the client, making sure that the client is treating in a timely fashion, that they're going to all their appointments, and that they are they are they are following through with the the recommendation the recommendations of the different medical providers along the way. So that's one of the big things that a lot of really good PI law firms will do. But uh, one of one of the, the the elements that we really try to push for is uh, pain and suffering and economic damages. If you look at a the jury instructions, if if you want to be very methodical, you need to look at every single element of loss that is included in a jury instruction, and then make an argument as to how much your case is worth for every single one of those elements in your in your demand package. I think that the easier version of that is just to try to build up pain and suffering very, very early on. And a, a, a good way to do that is to speak with your client and to get the, the, those subjective data points from them at different times in the pre-suit practice. What does that mean practically? So when they come through the door of your law firm, ask them what their pain levels are, ask them how the injury has affected their lives. And then before the demand package is sent out, ask the same thing. And this way you have two data points that can substantiate how this client of yours uh, has been affected subjectively by this injury and this incident. And what this does is that it really adds that one or two lines under the non-economic damages piece that will substantiate um, a a higher, that that will command a higher premium uh, for that particular claim. And the, the reason why this is important is because uh, as soon as it's put, it's put into, into litigation, these are the things that defense counsels are going to be particularly attentive to. You know, this, is going to this, is, this tends to be a huge element of any claim and not building it up earlier on is, is a huge mistake. One other thing that I think is particularly helpful is, is getting more information around economic losses. How, how many days of work did they miss out on? Has this affected their ability to contribute to household chores? Um, these kinds of things are also really, really important. And, and what, I'm, what I'm saying, I think, sounds very, very difficult because it, there's an element of subjectivity to it. But we've seen counsel, some plaintiff attorneys, having these questionnaires that they have their, their, their plaintiffs fill out. So as, as, as weird as it may sound, you can, you can intersperse a great level of humanity and subjectivity into your demands by using automated processes. And this is what will make your demand stand out and what will eventually prepare you for a a much more robust litigation practice as well. All right. I want to get into demands in a second. Um, Breezy, when we go through to cut this out, let's cut that segment that Sam just talked about and let's include the Florida jury instructions so we can get some specific examples as people are going through the smaller ones. Um, the other thing that I always suggest for people, my, my two cents also talk to family members because there's always, there are those PI clients that are blowing things out of proportion. Those totally happen, but
but there are those other clients that are trying to tough it out and put on a happy face. And then you talk to the spouse or you talk to the kids and you get a totally different story about how it's impacted them. And so highly, highly, highly suggest make sure you're interviewing the rest of the family um, to the extent that you can, especially about the economic stuff. All right. So anything else before we get into putting that demand packet together? Cause I know like that's the part where you all shine, at least the first part where you all shine. Yeah, I'd say um, I'd say also having a, a, a and this is a, it may sound like super, um, super uh, uh, intuitive, but making sure you have all the medical records and bills. Um, you you say some... it. We are we have a lot of cases where we're the second attorney tracking down like year and a half old bills that <laughs> nobody else got. So I mean, I hear you. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times where we're working through a demand and we're like, hey, guys, like. There's like a bunch of bills that are missing here. There's a there's a, a treatment record. And then the other thing that's really, really important is sometimes there are recommendations for a further treatment in the, in the medical records that are missed by the case manager. And so you had a few instances where there was a potential mild TBI diagnosis that was looming, but that was not followed up on. Um, and, and, and that we, we thankfully caught it and, and related to the, to the powers that be, but, uh, those are, I think, getting the medical bills, the records, making sure you're, you're methodical about that process and making sure that you're following up with your client to make sure that you have their entire list of, of, of providers is going to be tremendously, uh, helpful because it's otherwise going to, to really slow down the settlement process as well, because the claim adjuster will ask for these additional, this additional information. And for anybody, TBI, traumatic brain injury, so it could be what we call a concussion, could be way, way, way worse. So all sorts of things along those lines become huge, especially the sooner they are treated, the quicker the people seem to get through the long-term cognitive effects, depending upon what it is. So I love it. And, and I love the fact that you're talking about like you all catching this, like that second set of eyes becoming huge for a ton of this to maximize the value, but also to maximize the recovery of the person. You know, if they've got this this potential TBI issue that's never addressed, who knows how long they're going to have memory fog? Who knows how long they're going to have, you know, emotional uh, fluctuations? Who knows how long they might have blurred vision or whatever else comes up from some of these things that if it's caught quickly enough can get addressed? Yeah, absolutely. And in our case, it was a, it was a, it was a, the, there was a, it was on the onset of a personality disorder, really. And, and that, that could have become a huge, huge impediment to their lives going forward, not only to themselves, but to the family members, too. So, and I think it's, and I think, um, I think we should, we're very careful about indicting personal injury attorneys about not catching these things. The, the reality is that they have so much things to do and the system is, is created in such a way that they need to go through a large volume of cases in order to, you know, make a livelihood for themselves and for it to be economical for them to process through a, a, a lot, all the claimants that, that have a, a, a meritorious claim. And I think it, as you as you rightfully mentioned, it's it's often helpful to have a second pair of eyes because it's it tends to be unrealistic for the attorney to comb through the medical records themselves to make sure there's nothing missing. Well, and not only the nothing missing, but also having the necessary knowledge base. You know, yes, we see a ton of me medical records, but like there are cases where even we've brought in you know nurses or or uh, former doctors or had expert witnesses come in and like review things. And there are things that they'll catch, which they should. I mean, they should know it better than me as a lawyer for some of these things. It's crazy to see, you know, the wording of some things or what things could actually mean. All right. So talk to me a little bit about that demand phase, because obviously I think from a personal injury standpoint, this is probably the most important part. As much as we talk about being trial lawyers, you know, 90 something percent of cases aren't going to get to trial. So that demand packet could be the first real true opportunity to get the right valuation for your client on the case. 
Yeah. So actually, uh, I I will uh, step back for one second. There's yeah, one thing that, that I'll add uh, as to what you should be doing to, to maximize the value of your case. If you do have a very, very big claim, then you should be sending information to the adjuster earlier rather than later, because that is going to inform their process in reserving. So you want the claim adjuster to reserve as high as possible, as early as possible as well. So if you if the person is going through significant surgeries or has significant surgeries that are uh, that are scheduled, don't wait until the demand package is, is prepared. Send that information to the claim adjuster. Make sure that they're aware of the severity of the claim. Uh, and then that that way they have ample opportunity to reserve appropriately and have the reserves that are that are proportionate with the demand you're going to be sending in thereafter. Makes total sense. Yeah, we had a case that actually uh, potentially became a medical malpractice case during one of the surgeries from the personal injury stuff, and we were able to get all of the records there ASAP while we went went to figure out the sepsis or whatever it was after that. And it was crazy to see. Like again, to go back to your original point, the insurance company did a really nice job staying coordinating with us to limit their exposure on the medical malpractice side, but also to, you know, assist us in getting the case resolved properly. No, that, that's that, that, and they tend to do a good job as well because the claim adjuster doesn't want to look like a fool either. They don't want to under reserve a case and for them, for, for a case to be passed into litigation, it's just not a good look for the claim adjuster either. So this is something that they can be proactive about and that they're happy to do so. All right. So we've got, we're, We've got the economic stuff from clients. We're getting those multiple points of contact with them. We're putting these things together. We've got some records went out. We found the rest of them. We got this demand packet. So kind of walk me through the process of what should happen. Walk me through the process of how even up assists with this, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, I like to say that we don't do anything new. We're basically, if you had an extra seven hours in a day, you could do exactly what we're doing. Um, we just have put a little bit more math and, and, and spin to it. Uh, but we're doing something that any attorney could, could, most attorneys could do themselves, right? So what we do is we will expose all the, the relevant information, exhibit it, and add additional analysis to it to make it very, very clear to anyone who reads the demand package that the, the amount that we're, that we're claiming for is perfectly reasonable. And what do, we, what we do in practice is we go through the, uh, the, the facts and liability section. If there's a police report, we take the, the important snippets and put it in there. If there's property damage that, that establishes cause, then we're going to put in the pictures in there as well. For medical expenses, we'll summarize what the medical expenses are. If, there's, if there are recommendations for future treatments in the body of the medical records, we will include those as well. As for the summary of the injuries and the treatments, that's where we're super methodical about actually including the codes. This way you're sort of putting the blinders on the adjuster and forcing them to put in your information into their system in order to get the value that is attributable to the specific injuries of your client. And we also summarize uh, what each provider did by you know, basically giving a, a, a sense of how many treatments there were over what period of time, what was the pain level coming in, what was the pain level coming out, and sort of the prognosis at the end of it. Uh, and once this is done, this is sort of the, the basis of the, the factual basis upon which you build the damages section. And the damages section, also needs to be detailed. You can't just ask for the policy limits. The damages section needs to be broken down into the medicals, of course, but as well as the economic and non-economic damages. For economic damages, we will do the analysis for loss of household services and loss of earnings. So we, we tend to refer to the, to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the foundational math that we do in order to come up with our projections. 
And for out-of-pocket expenses, we'll take all the receipts and, and, and expose them in, in the body of the demand package. For non-economic damages, we have two methodologies. One is we actually do a, a verdict search and a settlement search ourselves, right? So whenever, uh, whenever we get a case, we try to identify the most analogous cases with reference to the injuries and procedures and the, the, the jurisdiction of the claim. Sometimes it's not possible to find one that's, that's in the exact same venue. So we find, we find verdicts in, in a similar venue. And, and this really, you know, if you're asking for $400,000 in non-economic damages, and you cite to three cases that have very single, similar injuries and treatments where there was a million dollars in non-economic damages, that, that really clearly pervades that you are being very, very reasonable. And that sort of sets off the, the trigger for a potential bad faith claim later on. And if we can't find great case, uh, great, great verdicts, we also do a pro diem analysis. And sometimes we even do both just to show, you know, what we could be presenting to the jury to, to really push the envelope. Um, what's particularly special about our, our, our company is that we try to get as much data as, as much settlement data as possible. So insofar as there is no confidentiality provisions in the settlement outcomes, we will actually pay the attorneys that we prepared demands for to, for them to share the settlement data back with us. And so that way we're building our internal repository of hyper-specific uh, settlement data where, with, with the injuries and treatments and facts uh, searchable, categorized, and highly specific, such that we can have a pulse on what the outcomes for certain cases should be going forward. And this really makes it this makes it this the more the more density we have in certain jurisdictions, the better sense we have of whether your staff is overperforming, underperforming, and whether you should be you should be putting more cases into suit because the the claim adjusters aren't giving the respect that you deserve. Well, and let's be honest, as much as you all are putting effort into that, you're at best evening the field to the insurance company. At worst, still behind what the insurance company is collecting. It's just it's insane to me. The, the not knowledge, the data differentiators that we have between the two sides. Absolutely. It, it's not just data, right? It, it's data and resources. So, so insurance companies have, look, how do they even price insurance? To price insurance, they need to have a methodical way of aggregating and understanding the claims management process and then adding a, a markup to that. So they have, they, have, they have their own ways of understanding how much these cases are worth. Um, and they also have more resources than the average plaintiff personal injury attorney, and they can wait. So we're just offering a, a little bit, a, a little tool that plaintiff or personal injury attorneys can, can, can have in order for them to get the full value of the cases without, having, without spending an enormous amount of time on a per case basis. And we're giving them the opportunity to scale up the demands uh, in their practice without having to hire a, a ton of staff. Um, and and on the other side, the, the, on the defense side, you know they'll they'll readily hire economists, they'll readily hire experts, and they they pay a fraction of the cost that you pay because they have large deals with them, uh, and so that makes things really really difficult to balance out uh, as you go forward in, in, with the, with mid-sized practices. Well, and especially you've got the insurance company in essence subsidizing those costs across all of their users, whereas the personal injury firm might be subsidizing against, you know, 10 or 15 clients or 50 clients or whatever it is, you know, there's a lot more opportunity there for them to put more money to injure, well, to lessen the amount of money you'll get for your injury. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And maybe one other point we could, we could touch upon is uh, just the, 
the inherent conflict that exists between the policy holder and the insurance company and how you can position that in the demand package. Uh, this is a, this is an idea that was espoused by by Nick Rowley and, and running with the bulls, and I think it's been widely adopted thereafter. But really making sure that the the insured is also reading the demand package is understanding the demand that you are making and also understanding that if the insurance company that fails to settle within the limits, then they are on the hook for that excess judgment. And, and that really rattles uh, the insurance company because now they're getting pressure from two sides. One is, is the plaintiff counsel, but then they're also they also have the animosity of their, of their own client, of their own insured, uh, pushing them to, towards a settlement. And what often happens is in cases of, of great acrimony, the, the insured will get their own counsel and that will, that will, uh, that will take things up a few notches for, uh, for the insurance company as well. Is the craziest thing, right? You pay for insurance <laughs> to insure you and then it doesn't. And then you need to hire an attorney to defend you because the insurance company won't do what you pay them for. But have you had, so, had, 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 have you, have you had any experiences like that, Jordan? Uh, not where we have been the one who has been brought in, but where we have enjoyed that the other side did bring in another attorney to help them for cases that seem to be a lot easier to resolve than uh, the insurance company wanted to do it. Yeah, that's beautiful. So who knows? Um, anything else along in that demand phase? And then obviously we'll talk about after that, but like in terms of getting together that ideal demand packet, anything else you all want to share? Um, I, the, the last thing I'd say is um, you need to give the insurance company a reasonable amount of time to respond. I mean, the bigger the claim, the more time you need to give them, obviously. And to really think twice, for the smaller claims that are obvious just wins, um, when they come back and ask for, uh, for, for an extension, really ask yourself why they're asking for that extension if they're just trying to go through additional records to find something to to throw out, you have to be very methodical about your thinking with respect to delays and extensions, um, especially for the purposes of, of, of uh, maximizing the value of, or the propensity of bad faith claims that come after. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about that post-demand packet. So we put together this great demand packet. We've got everything you're talking about here in it. We send it off. We don't have a resolution. So walk me through what can we do after that to maximize the value of PI cases as they continue down towards, you know, filing suit and trying the case? Uh, thereafter, uh, one one trick that I, I have seen uh, in the in, in again at the demand package stage is to is if you're fairly certain that's going to happen, to just attach a draft complaint to the demand package. Uh, and that tends to ramp up the pressure a little bit because they know that you're willing to file suit. And I'd say uh, the one thing I'd say about if you if you don't get the respect that you deserve when the demand package is sent out, like don't hesitate to file or to refer the case out uh, because, because then the claim adjuster will sense weakness and it becomes much more a question around playing around your relative position uh, as an attorney versus the merits of the case. So you always want to make sure that your conversation with the, the adjuster and opposing counsel is squarely around the merits of the case and not around any exogenous factors that may be your practice or your desire to get to a settlement quickly. And we had a, uh, there's an attorney in town that has the, uh, I don't know if it's his expression or somebody else gave it to him, but it's, it's basically F it, file suit. And it's not that it's anything unique, but like, 
I have heard him say that a hundred times on, on, you know, at, at presentations of the bar online, whatever it is. And like, it's so true. Exactly. What you talked about, like it, to some extent, there's a game of chicken in a lot of these cases. And if you're not the one who chickens out, you're going to get a better resolution for your clients. Yeah. The, the one thing I'll say is if you, if you do put the case into litigation, counsel will have to read your demand package and it's worth having a conversation with the counsel then because they they might have a different approach than the claim adjuster does and and that's a very delicate process as well right because counsel has to respond to you but also has to respond to the adjuster so you really want to help counsel understand that case as best as possible as quickly as possible because you know, talk to a bunch of Allstate uh, folks. They're fighting with their adjusters as, just as much as you are, right? They're they're fighting with with the internal stakeholders to get to a settlement uh, as frequently, if more frequently than you are. So, if you help them make the correct arguments, you might be helping yourself. Just know that it's it, it might be a little bit difficult to settle the case immediately after it's put into litigation because they may need. A, a few more new facts in order to, you know, push the envelope and to get a bigger authority to settle the case beyond what the adjuster had reserved for. Um, but, but it might not take as much work as you think. So it, it's always helpful to have a, a little something in your back pocket to give to the, to the, to the council to, to give them that extra push that they need to get the higher settlement bend. Well, and also as you go to mediation, I'm a huge fan of like, all right, here's the demand packet. Here's what's changed since then. Now have the mediator read it and then see if the mediator starts, you know, arguing with them about how reasonable this was eight months ago before we uh, filed suit and went to this stage. So, yeah, for sure. And, and the, what we've seen some of, our, some of our clients do is they have a pre, pre-mediation demand and a post-mediation demand. And they basically have a binder with all the demands that they have prepared throughout the arc of this litigation. And, and, you know, when you send your bad faith notice, that, that becomes, that becomes the silver, that, that becomes the, 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 the smoking gun in many ways, uh, because you have a, a, an arc, a, a clear, reasonable arc of, of demands that have been systematically supported over time and that the insurance company has disregarded. And that's going to make a very, very big difference and an impression upon the insurance company when that, that discussion around bad faith arises. Especially also if you're in a state that allows for proposals for settlement or something along those yeah. lines where you can make a formal offer. Um, in Florida, yeah. if you beat it by a certain percentage, you can get costs and yeah. fees and whatnot added on top of it. So it's really nice to be able to pad some of the, the bad faith packets with like, hey, could have been resolved for this so long ago. And, you know, here's what they got dinged for. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get towards the end, any other tips or tricks or insight you all want to share when it comes to maximizing that value of PI cases and utilizing even up law to help? Yeah, I'd say the the last thing I uh, maybe uh, I'll let Ray as well uh, uh, comment here, but I think the one the one big thing that I, I'd say is to spend a lot of time with with case managers and paralegals to make sure they know what to look out for and they know what questions to ask the the the, the their clients. Insofar as like as automating processes, we're we're always happy to step in and help. The, the any, any PI law firm, small, big, doesn't matter, to automate a certain elements of their practice. It could be standardizing the questions they ask at intake, standardizing the questions that they ask pre-demand, and, and collecting the information for them to actually draft a demand package. All of this is super important, but it always relies upon 
the case managers doing a really good job. And if the case managers are not doing a good job, it makes this entire process a lot more difficult. And, and so uh, I would say training is an, in, is an enormously important element of, of, of running a good pre-suit practice and having experienced people there that know what they're doing and having a second pair of eyes is going to make a very, very big difference. I also think there's a there's a beautiful customer service standpoint of that, or there's a, a genuineness con- of concern when you have that right case manager, that right paralegal who truly cares about the client. You build that better relationship. They get you, you know, the client gets you records faster, or they sign the HIPAA releases faster. They come in to, you know, they review the demand packet quicker and get it back to you to send out. I mean, it's just it's amazing how far you'll go with that better relationship as opposed to, you know, you get some of these firms with 350 cases on one person and then they don't know anybody. It's just a file number. Yeah. And and what you can add to this is just like, like Sam said, I mean, case managers, paralegals, they're typically like the unsung heroes of the firm. They're handling so much and nobody kind of sees how much is like actually being handled by them, talking to clients, collecting medical records, even writing these demands. And so the, some of the best firms that we work with actually recognize that, Hey, like, okay, we hired these capable people to handle these processes. We need to do what we can to enable them to do their best work. And so the more tools kind of resources that you give them to stay organized and st- most of all, stay, stay focused on what matters in terms of working up these cases. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's incredibly important. Cause like we've kind of harped on this point, what goes into the demand package is actually the most important part, not just us. Of course we rewrite the demand, but we want to save you time from like actually writing those demands so that you can focus on actually getting you know, the information that's needed to actually maximize the value of the case. So help your people. That's, that's pretty much the, the main takeaway there. They're, they're your everything, and that's going to help you scale. I love it. Uh, as we get towards the end, anything else you all want to make sure we cover? I know we'll have our final takeaway, but I want to give you all the floor. No, I mean, uh, check us out. Uh, I mean, we're, we're a legal tech company based out of San Francisco. Our idea is to standardize the pre-suit practice for every single personal entry law firm in the United States. So if you're walking through a PI firm in West Virginia or Miami, uh, Miami beach, you should be getting the same kind of representation. And what we're, what we aim to do is build a toolkit for personal injury attorneys to use in order to achieve better outcomes for their clients faster. And we don't, we don't uh, pretend like we're going to replace anyone. We don't, we don't pretend like we're better than anyone. All we are is more hours in the day. We're, as Ray likes to put it, we're sort of the Iron Man suit for the average case manager and attorney. Uh, that that's that's Ray credit goes to Ray on that one, um, and, and that's what that's really all we achieve to do. Uh, and and so far, I mean, we're, we raised our seed last that summer. We're raising our series at well, we're completing the series A this year. And our, our clients have been tremendously happy with us. We haven't had a single customer turn, so we've been uh, we've been we've been very very blessed. I think we've hit a nerve in the market, and we know there are a lot of PI attorneys that are out there that have a bunch of demands waiting to be written on the on their <laughs> on hey, someone's desk. <laughs> look, I want to I want to flip that around. That's a bunch of clients waiting to get the money that they need That's after right. this accident. That is just right. waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah, and I mean I mean listen like. Um, PI attorneys are so focused on on getting the clients through the door, and it takes so much effort to get the marketing right. And once that machine takes off, there's often a mismatch between operational bandwidth and marketing capacity, and there is no great turnkey solution. And and that's what we're offering as well for the clients, for our our clients who are growing and and scaling quickly, where they can't bring on staff fast enough, uh, we're the perfect solution for them as well. 
Love it. All right. So um, if you've enjoyed our Exhibit A shows and you love the information we have to share, I want to invite you all to our next episode. That's going to air on September 20th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. So I believe that is on a Monday with Rachel Ardenu. And Rachel is an attorney who specializes in marijuana and cannabis cases who's going to talk to us about the complete guide to jumpstarting your creative marketing mindset. So obviously coming from an industry that, uh, I don't know, requires creative marketing or certainly it can truly dovetail into it. I'm super excited to hear what Rachel has to share when it comes to that. Obviously not all of us are uh, cool enough to work in cannabis law, but I hope that we'll all be able to take some great insight from Rachel and apply it to more creative marketing from our own standpoint. With that though, uh, Ray and Sam, before I let y'all go, I want that final nugget of wisdom, that biggest takeaway. So it could be something we've talked about. It can be something totally different. But if somebody's been listening to this for the last 45 minutes or so, they remember nothing you said, what would be your biggest takeaway to help as many attorneys as possible become the exhibit A of a successful lawyer? Build out the non-economic damages for every single case by with, with information provided to you by your client. Love it. Ray? Well, I, I was going to say, have build processes that allow your team to collect the information you need to work up the case. Cause that's absolutely important. That very much in line with what Sam said, but that's what you got to do. We're, we're seeing that that's what attorneys mainly miss out on. And uh, it's just because there's so much to do. So, yeah. Well, and the more you build that system, the easier it is for that system to scale with more clients, the easier it is for you to train another case manager to follow that system or paralegal or whatever it is, the easier growth becomes as long as you are doing things consistently or automatically or with, you know, even up, et cetera. All right. Yep. So Agreed. thank you to everybody for listening and watching to this. Uh, before I let you go, if you all love our conversations, you want more free tips and insight and you want to connect with our guests better, we invite you over to our Facebook group, Solutions for Lawyers by Lawyers, Solutions for Lawyers by Lawyers on Facebook. Most of our guests are in there. If you've got specific questions, we've also do um, spotlights of members in there as well as monthly happy hours to get everybody together virtually and chat across the country. So thank you everybody for listening. We'll see you Monday for Rachel's conversation on creative marketing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exhibit A Attorneys. If you're interested in becoming the Exhibit A of a successful attorney, please check us out at LegalEaseMarketing.com, E-A-S-E.